What's up? This is Mike Fenoya from Amigos, and Amigos Podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris Podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with podcasts and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Check out OsirisPod.com and stay in the loop. Sign up for the newsletter to learn about the newest podcasts and events. Relics Magazine is a media partner of Osiris. For music news, go to Relics.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Amigos. Uh, it's your host, Mike Fenoya. Hope you're doing great. Um, got a fun interview today with uh, Grateful Dead historian, author, and host of Tales from the Golden Road on the Grateful Dead channel, Sirius XM, channel 23, uh, David Gans. Uh, as with um, you know, one of the past episodes with Sam Cutler, uh, it's really neat to talk to someone who's like kind of part of the Grateful Dead lore and the story, um, you know, somebody that I followed from the beginning, listening to his terrestrial radio show, The Grateful Dead Hour, when I was a little kid, all the way up to, you know, calling in on his show now and uh, listening to his music. He's a author, a musician, and uh, we talk a bunch about being on the road as a fan and also as a uh, performer. So enjoy the episode. And guys, if you are enjoying Amigos, head over to iTunes, give us a five-star rating, uh, write a review. Uh, share with your friends. Um, that stuff really goes a long way. So if you could uh, show your love and show your support for Amigos and all the uh, shows that are on the Osiris Network, uh, make sure you do that. So um, once more, if you can head over, five-star ratings and reviews are always uh, greatly appreciated, but only if we earned it. No uh, gratuitous bullshit, please. Enjoy the episode with David Gans, and as always, you can follow at Mike Fenoya, F-I-N-O-I-A, and uh, at Amigos Pod, and follow all of the great shows on the Osiris Network. Take care. David, thank you for joining us, everybody. David Gans, welcome uh, to Amigos, my friend. Nice to be with you again, Mike. Um, yeah, we, are, uh, we, we are touching base uh, at the, you know, prior to going live, we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, it's, interna- it's National Voter Registration Day, and, uh, you know, People are getting involved thanks to, you know, the help of our artists and, um, you know, a lot of the folks that we turn to for guidance in our scene. And you were mentioning that there is a uh, in the bluegrass community, there is a new hashtag that's out there for uh, raising awareness about voter registration. Yes, my friends, uh, Melody Walker and Jacob Groupman, who have a wonderful band called Front Country. Uh, started this hashtag in in their circle called Pick the Vote. It's it's exactly the same thing as Headcount is doing, where they get great musicians to pose for photos with, uh, you know, why they're why they want you to register and vote and things like that. We're just trying to motivate everybody to participate in this society. You know, uh, in, in my lifetime. So much of um, political discourse has just gotten so nasty and unpleasant that a lot of people have been encouraged to sort of tune out and forget about it. And one of the most pernicious uh, memes that circulated in the 70s when I was a young man was, don't vote, it only encourages them. And that, <laughs> yeah, right. 
it was incredibly dangerous because it took it took a lot of people out of the political process and left the field clearer for people who aren't our friends. Yeah. And they're very well organized. You know, I don't want to get really partisan here on a music oriented podcast. My firm belief is that if everybody voted, it would be a much better society. I just have a hunch that people like me outnumber the people like them. Yeah, I, I hear you. And, and you know, the, a lot of the messages that are out there, uh, Phil uh, posed with a, a picture I'm actually looking at now, and it says bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. And I love that yes, sign. I, I mean, that is just that that's it. And, you know, even if it's a defensive vote, which I think mine have always been come to think of it. I have a real trust issue when it comes to anyone who um, sets out to lead people there. I feel like there's always something there that if you want to be a professional, you know, three piece suit wearing leader, there's something, you know, very <laughs> sinister about you. So I always tend to vote on the defensive, but at least it's a vote. I've never missed an election. I've always voted. And uh, even if it's, I didn't really dig both people, you know, prior to the Obama well, years. It's, just, it, it's not an expression of your personal philosophy. It is a strategic application of your tiny bit of power, hopefully in concert with lots and lots of other people using their tiny bit of power in the same direction. It, to, to believe that your vote is meaningless it is a serious mistake. And to believe that all politicians are bad is also a serious mistake. I, I live in a state that's governed by Jerry Brown, who's a career politician who I trust completely. Yep. Is Nobody's perfect. Nobody is going to do exactly what you want them to do every time. But to disqualify a politician because they're not perfectly aligned with your uh, wishes is a, a, a going to throw that throw your vote away while somebody else who's much better organized gets their candidate in you know this right. is not a time i'm sorry to say it it's not a time for third party candidates and it's definitely not a time for protest votes i've lost a few friends over this stuff because there are people yeah. that don't want to believe how bad things are we are in, we are approaching fascism in this country at a disgraceful clip and it scares the shit out of me, and we need to do something about it. And that means you can't waste your vote on somebody who has no chance of winning. You have to throw your vote in with the less-than-perfect candidate in order to overwhelm the, the other side, who are, by the way, going out of their way and taking great steps to disenfranchise huge numbers of people. Yep. I have a feeling that you and I are a couple of white guys talking to a bunch of other white people for the most part. Oh. And most of us who are involved in this transaction that you and I are having right now aren't people who are in danger of having our voter registrations canceled over bullshit laws. Yeah. So we have to remember that not everybody has it as good as we do, and we have to protect the people who are in uh, endangered classes. And not to put too fine a point on it, the Republican Party has been the party of racism and the party of racist dog whistles for a very long time. And what we're seeing right now is uh, basically the final result of decades and decades of work to undermine democracy and basically common decency. Look what's going on right now. To you know, Any woman who is watching what's going on right now in the Kavanaugh situation has got to be oh, believing that there's nobody in the government who gives a rat's ass about women's needs and women's concerns. And that 
you know, whatever bad stuff has gone on on the Democrat side, the Republicans are just flat out racist and misogynist at this point, and they must be stopped. Yeah. Oh, I guess I went and got political. <laughs> hey, you know what? It's hard not to. It's really hard not to. And that's the thing that now, I just find that to be. That's the dialogue. And, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head where you said you lost a couple friends uh, because of this. I've made it a, uh, a practice to unfollow most friends on social media because I want to I'm running out of people to love you know like I end up finding I end up finding you know where I, I like the version of people that I know and you know some of my oldest dearest friends go posting these things online and it's like oh Jesus no you're not you it's almost like finding out someone has like a an addiction or some you know stash of you know illegal pornography on their computer you're just like god no not you and it's uh terrible to find out that about certain certain folks and i i try my best to um you know i had a talk with andy bernstein uh on this show and uh just learning about the mission of headcount and you know the thing that we kind of ended up revolving the conversation to was this central theme that our scene the scene that you and i are collectively a part of we're a very passionate, very empathetic, very um, in tune scene for the most part. And, you know, to approach someone in the parking lot with a clipboard and say, hey, you know, have you registered to vote? Uh, we're not telling you to vote Republican, Democrat, independent. Just just take part. Just make sure that you're doing whatever you can. Um, I wanted to ask you prior to headcount or anything like that, were there any solo kind of... Uh, missionaries in the dead lot or in the dead scene that uh you know is this a novel idea or is this something that was happening you know prior to headcount well i i think it's been uh the counterculture you know the grateful dead came out of that great massive upheaval of the 60s when everybody got interested in living alternative lifestyles and stuff and and that led to a certain amount of uh, what we were talking about earlier, that sort of ignore it and it'll go away kind of attitude. But a, a lot of people at the same time, in, in my experience and in my circles, were not tuning out the rest of the world. We're still very much involved in what was going on and still very interested. As I mentioned, um, I benefited from the lowering of the voting age from 21 to 18, and I was allowed to vote in the November 1972 election. And I've never missed an election since because I think it's really important. And the Grateful Dead, while being sort of nominally non-political as a as an organization, as individuals, we're all very much committed. Bob Weir has a long and deep history of environmental action. Right. Um, you know, just all the manifestations of common decency. The Grateful Dead started a foundation and played many benefits every year so they could raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to give away to grassroots causes and stuff. And the Rex Foundation was founded more than 30 years ago. Right. So, it, the, and it, it, you know, the, the decision was made not to make overt political statements from the stage, at least not very often. But uh, Bobby, I remember back all the way back in the early 80s at Frost Amphitheater, Bobby urging people to vote and occasionally voting specifically on a specific issue, you know, please vote no on so-and-so in California, whatever. So I, I think that uh, there has been political activity in the hippie Grateful Dead scene all along. 
but not enough. maybe. Yeah. Do you feel that uh, maybe looking at this is something I've thought about quite a bit, uh, lowering the voting age once more, uh, maybe down to 16. Uh, I've had conversations with people about that uh, because it seems like now, you know, the out of sight, out of mind uh, child rearing uh, mentality is gone. And it seems like kids are way more in tune and. You know, earlier, earlier, you and I were talking about the Stoneman Douglas uh, students in Florida. I, I had the opportunity to uh, meet a couple of them when I was performing at Hard Rock Casino down there in Hollywood, Florida. And just the, the, the forced maturity that these kids had, you know, life was kind of, you know, turning them into adults quick. Um, but it yeah. seemed to me like I'd really like to know what they have to think about things, you know, and it and it's. Um, maybe it, you know, we cap the voting age and lower it or so, I don't know. There's, I wonder about that. What do you have any thoughts on possibly do like another? I'm, I'm not sure about that because it's true that 16 year olds aren't as fully formed as maybe they ought to be. And it might be too easy to influence them. I remember when I was a youngster, it was pretty easy to persuade me of one thing or another and then i'd go home and talk to my dad about it and he would inform me a few other things i had decided yeah um you know i i'm not sure that i would necessarily support the lowering of the voting age to 16 but i can't off the top of my head find a principled reason to to uh completely reject the idea what i would prefer to see is an informed electorate and a, a wise generation of people that can filter the bullshit and the out and out lies. You know, one of the things that's different today from how it was 30 years ago is that there is a 24 seven propaganda channel called Fox news yeah. that disguises itself as an actual news outlet, but is, is really, really engaged in the, uh, propagation of falsehoods the the obscuring of reality and out and out lies so people i i what i want is for everybody in america to develop a much more uh, effective bullshit detector mm. so that they're not subject to all these lies and if if our education system was better at teaching young people critical thinking i'd probably be more enthusiastic about the 16 year old voting age yeah. The, the the regardless of how old you have to be to vote, you have to pay attention to what's going on in the fucking world, and make an informed decision. And 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 also, confounding things is the prodigious amount of misinformation that we see on Facebook. I have many good friends that have been seriously hornswoggled by false sources of of information. You know? Yeah. Well, and, that's. That sort of goes back to developing good, strong filters for bullshit. Yeah. And it's, you know, this this era now of, uh, you know, I mean, you walk outside of the Sirius XM uh, building on uh, 49th and 6th over there and right next door is the Fox News building and they have a ticker going around the building and it's just in red, big, giant font just beaming out right onto time, you know, that that midtown Manhattan area just showing news and it's, you know, you, you see one uh, people taking selfies, giving Fox news, the finger, and then 10 feet yeah. down, 10 feet down, you see someone with their thumbs up, you know, in front of Fox news. And it's like, Jesus, you know, like, I don't know. I missed that. I missed the day when, uh, 
We saw the president three times a year on TV. He would interrupt uh, an eight o'clock TV show for a State of the Union and tell everybody, "Hey, look, unemployment's down." Uh, you know, whatever Saddam Hussein, Desert Storm, you know, back to your regularly scheduled programming, you know, now this, this dummy, we see his face every goddamn day and it's just, but you know what, David, let's talk about some fun stuff instead. Jesus, we got off, off, you know, that, 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 you know, but I, I echo every sentiment, uh, everybody get out there and, and inform yourself and trim the fat, trim the mental fat, get with people that you know, are, are of like mind, but uh, be open to opinions. Well, one other thing before we change the subject, I wish people would read actual newspapers more often. A couple of my friends in Ohio in particular are have been so, uh, have so bought into the bullshit that the New York Times is a fountain of lies. And I keep thinking, why don't you read your local newspaper, right. every page of your local newspaper, instead of just the opinion pages that you want to take issue with. Read the actual news and see what's going on in the world. See how your city government works. See how your school boards work. It's not, you know, media is not full of lies. Media is, there are media channels that can't be trusted, and every newspaper prints erroneous stuff. But in general, you know, reality is worth paying attention to. So I, I want people to read newspapers and filter them wisely rather than completely ignore all the mainstream media. That's a phone in my office that's ringing. That's the, that's what that sound is. Oh, okay. Cool. Sorry about that. No, no worries. One last question about the, the political side of things. Do you have any, uh, which, what neutral uh, stations or what, uh, you know, Reuters, NPR. Are there any that you recommend to anyone out there that's looking for a uh, bipartisan uh, news outlet? Are there any that you go I don't to think for any such thing as a bipartisan news outlet? I read the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I support both of them with my subscription dollars. I read the San Francisco Chronicle every day when I'm at home. I get subscribed to the Chronicle; it's delivered to my door. There's excellent local reporting. They print opinion pieces from various sides including some stuff that makes me want to throw my coffee cup across the room (laughs) but they do it so that you can get a sense of the spectrum of opinions i watch msnbc a lot because i trust the reporting that people like uh, lawrence o'donnell and rachel maddow do Mm -hmm. um but i also find myself really really irritated by msnbc i think chuck todd is kind of a wimp and treats the whole political thing like a fucking sports event rather than the life and death matter that it is and it infuriates me to the way he runs his panel discussion anyway yeah. we're opening up a whole nother thing <laughs> well i'll take newspaper pay attention to the reality around you people that's my point awesome that's that's words of wisdom uh, I, I get my news from uh, Sirius XM Channel 23, the Grateful Dead channel, and uh, that's where I get my news uh, from Tales from the Golden Road, uh, which is something, Boy, David, I'm grossly misinformed, underinformed, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I have to talk to you about this. Uh, I, I can't get enough of this Pacific Northwest 7374 uh collection that just came out um i am an enormous fan of uh native american literature art uh just the mystique that comes with it the oral tradition uh the entire package from you know the the cover art to the music um you know the selection of the shows i mean this is just one of my now maybe i'm a little bit uh you know 
uh, you know, I, I, this is my favorite era of Grateful Dead uh, in particular, but there's just something about this set that is just unreal. And I wanted to, to chat with you a little bit about it. I agree with every word that you just said. I came on board with the Grateful Dead in 1972, so this is the period that I lo uh, love the most. I have this sort of pet theory that everybody's favorite Grateful Dead is the one they first saw. Uh-huh, okay. I was a Keith and Donna era Grateful Dead person, um, I I'm still very partial to that period. I agree with you completely about the six complete shows that are in the set. I love the... Uh, packaging art. I haven't read the the liner note essays yet, but I really, really love the packaging. Uh, I've been a fan of that North Coast style since I spent time up there when I was much younger. I, I, I worked in Vancouver for a while, and so I got really seriously into that, you know, that North Coast Indian um, art style. So I really appreciate the packaging as well. The, the uh, set arrived just as I was going on the road in the West in my own car. So it was oh, a perfect, perfect to load all the shows into my phone and listen to them while I was driving around. And I, there is, I, I came to this conclusion some years ago. I picked 326.73 kind of at random to listen to on, a, on another Southwest tour. Okay. And I fell so completely in love with that show that I listened to like nothing else for like a week. Yeah. I just the show would stop, it would end, and I'd start it again. I th I think a 1973 Dark Star is like an absolutely perfect thing to listen to while you're driving around the deserts of Utah. Oh wow, that sounds pretty. So I got to listen to, to I listened to three of these shows, you know, comp without uh, in their entirety several times over the course of a week long tour of Arizona and Utah. So I'm deeply, deeply into this thing. I love everything I've heard so far. The improvisations are amazing. The the songs. Bob Weir is sort of in his ascendancy as a songwriter and co-leader of the band in this period. And we're hearing these clean, beautiful recordings of a band that is just in absolute peak creativity. Everybody is hitting on all cylinders bill kreutzman's drumming is just mind-blowing throughout uh, it's it's unbelievable and keith just sounds so energetic and creative and uh you know i keep going back to this bird song um it's it's i mean it's it's out of this world and and it's something that like i think it's like a 14 minute bird song that just has so much like playfulness in in the keyboard and the you know um billy is just so patiently drumming you know, it's more of that rhythmic kind of it's almost and it's funny because you look at the art artistry of the package and it does kind of have this more tribal sound to it. And it seems to be a very laid back, patient, fun run. And and, and there's got to be something. Patient, well, yeah. I, I, yeah, I've always when I listen to these shows, I think, man, they have all the time in the world. They're just not rushing. There's no every song they take their time between songs. It just feels like. Like nobody's in a hurry. No, and then, everybody's yeah. exactly where they want to be, and it just feels so good. I I got that from that three twenty six seventy three thing. It just it just has this feeling of uh, unhurriedness. Right, and everybody is right here having this transcendent time together. And Absolutely, it, it just feels timeless to me when you listen to these shows. You know, I had that. Uh, I had that same experience. Your six twenty, your three twenty six seventy three experience. I had with the London seventy four 
uh, Dick's picks that uh, I, I mean, it was something prior to, you know, us being able to load hundreds of thousands of songs on a phone when you had to kind of pick a couple CDs for a road trip or a couple tapes. That was one that I always had in, and it was just such a nice... I remember the the weather report, Let It Grow, from that uh, run and the black-throated wind. And, you know, the thing that you mentioned here about Bobby's, like, you know, we're at a pinnacle point in him becoming kind of like a band leader. And, I mean, this was also a time when they had just come off of... Like, there are songs included in this package that are from Garcia's first solo album, from... Uh, Ace was done by by this point, correct? Was Ace recorded yeah. in that was Ace what came 70? out in nineteen seventy two? Yeah, so I mean, yeah. We, we yeah, they, there was a huge amount of of new material, and they were they hadn't yet uh, for the uh, the seventy three shows that we have here, they hadn't yet introduced a weather report suite. I don't think that came later that year, right? But, yeah. He had six songs that were introduced at um, the first gig of 73. They were uh, Here Comes Sunshine, Road Jimmy, the original version of They Love Each Other, uh, um, Wave That Flag, which later morphed yeah. into U.S. Yes, Blues, China Doll, and Eyes of the World. Yeah. I was at that show at, Fro at uh, uh, the Maples Pavilion, February 9th, 1973, when all those new songs came in. Wow. In my belief, as as a, a sort of musical historian of this stuff, I, I feel like every time the Grateful Dead introduced some new material, they expanded their musical horizons. You know, they never wrote the same song twice, if they could help it. They were really careful to keep uh, each other interested. I think they kept themselves and their partners interested by expanding their musical horizons individually and the new songs that they brought in expanded the collective musical horizons you know that the exploratory or the, the the scales and stuff that they played eyes of the world isn't an open free improvisational vehicle in the same weather report was later right and dark star playing in the band are but it created uh it opened up some new rhythmic and harmonic space for them to work in and and that opened up you know that affected the music happening all over the place every every new groove that they brought in you know improved and widened their musical horizons for all of the jamming as well yeah absolutely and and you know i i think when i try to describe or discuss with uh you know, fellow comedians about what it is that I love about the Grateful Dead and about Fish and those two in particular really is the give and take between the audience and the band of trust where, you know, people there, of course, there was probably a handful of folks at that, you know, February 9th, 73 show that were yelling St. Stephen or yelling Casey Jones and they want, you know, there was those p folks, but the majority were there to, you know, take in whatever the dead had to give and the dead took back whatever the audience had to give. And, and that has been something that as a performer myself, and, you know, I'd love your thoughts on that too. Uh, I think that's something you strive for where it's, you know, it's going to be perfectly imperfect most of the time, but you're going to watch this grow, you know? Yeah. I, I, I think that the dead trained their audience to expect novelty rather than familiarity. And yeah, there's always somebody hollering Casey Jones of course. in the back of the room. Yeah. 
because you know not everybody's uh, understanding exactly what's going on here but we you know most bands or most you know artists in the mainstream go record an album and then they go tour the album and right you've heard the record before you go to the gig and you know what the hit record is going to be or everybody knows what the hit songs are or whatever yep. so uh in with the grateful dead it was more like uh they would work their songs out in front of us and then go record them after they toured them for a while and yep. we felt like we were part of the process and i and you and i both as performers know this thing we're looking out there into the audience and getting information back from them i never make a set list when i'm on stage no i like to go in well, I think about what I'm going to play first, but I sort of listen for what's coming back from the audience and see what kind of reactions I'm getting. And I'll choose the second song of my set while I'm playing the first song, yep. or maybe not even until it's over, uh, while, I, while I'm thinking about what the audience is, is giving me back. You know, you can see if they're nodding their heads along with it, if they're singing along. You can tell if the audience wants something rowdier or if you can get away with playing something quieter. I like to do that in real time. And that's another thing I learned from the Grateful Dead. Give an honest, real time performance. You know, don't come onto the stage knowing ahead of time what you're going to do because that's a canned performance. Right. Absolutely. And I think that we have a, uh, a, a more um, higher expectation of ourselves because of the music that we listen to and because of the scene that we uh, have become a part of. Uh, because I think we we expected that from our bands, and uh, you know I know I know that um, you know in talking to you in the past, I know you're not a huge uh, fish fan. Not that you don't like them, but you know that you're. Um, they did something that I think about constantly, and uh, on Halloween, I don't know if you know about this about them, but they're a uh, they have this kind of like uh, tradition where they play a musical costume. And uh, yeah. on ha on Halloween night, they play an album start to finish. Um, they've done yeah, Ziggy, they've done Quadrophenia, the White Album, you know, tons of great albums. Uh, one Remain in Light, one Remain in Light in Vegas '96. They did that. Yep, they did um, Gim uh, Exile on Main Street. A lot of great albums. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really great. Now, here's something you know to the point of what you we were just talking about with the Grateful Dead that really blows me away about the relationship between, you know, us fish fans and, and the band on Halloween night at boardwalk hall in Atlantic city, when everybody was expecting a cover album, they went out and played their soon to be album start to finish. So it was all songs that no, none of us have ever heard before. And wow. the entire set that everyone was expecting, you know, Zeppelin three or uh, overnight sensation or some Zappa, you know, they came out and just did their upcoming album. And the first song or two, everyone's kind of like, you know, what the hell is this? You know, because it's a big party night. Everyone's kind of, you know, liquored up. And But then once you kind of understand, like, holy shit, they're playing their upcoming, the album that we heard rumors about coming out soon, it kind of almost was like a warm feeling of, wow, they really, really trust us and they need us, you know? Like, it's it, isn't that kind of a neat like just the and Trey mentioned it, you know, from, you know, stage at that point was just like, you know, it's pretty incredible that uh, you guys give us the chance to to do this. And um, and then Abe Vigoda came out on stage dressed in a wombat suit and everything got weird. But it's just, you know, that that's something that I, I, I really 
I, I think about that so much as a, as a comic that um, we get kind of six to seven seconds in the beginning of a interaction where it's like you want people to know that they can like you and trust you and want to interact with you in this performance level. I feel like people shut off so quickly these days, you know, and uh, to have that ability to have an audience, you know, give you love and trust and, and patience and freedom to, you know, stumble and fall and pick yourself back up and laugh about it together. Um, we're really lucky to have that music, I think. Yeah, I've, I've operated that same way, again, because I'm, I'm doing looping and stuff and, and improvisation in my solo shows. I fuck up from time to time, and what I do, I've stopped a song and explained to the audience, you know, I, I, I use this looping thing and I did it wrong, and rather than allow this error to destroy the upcoming performance, I'm going to stop and start again. That's great. And usually people are pretty cool about it. I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to, oh, forget you. You're incompetent. I'm leaving. <laughs> people, I think, like the fact that I'm, I just tell them the truth. I fucked up. I'm starting over. You know, it, and you can usually get a laugh out of it. Of course. Yeah. And, but, you know, but I, 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 it is a weird thing feeling judged, you know, like like the opening act is such a precarious position to be in. I'm sure you get that because you're usually on a bill with like several comics, right? Yeah, Where you are. Well, right? it, well, and also I, uh, I I'm a writer for a TV show called Impractical Jokers and I tour with them. And uh, like we just did the Oklahoma State Fair. I keep saying Oklahoma, Minnesota State Fair, uh, not nine thousand people in the audience. And uh I went out and did about 15 minutes to warm up the crowd. And, uh, you know, it's almost kind of like being a pitcher in a baseball game uh, where you can't just go out and throw fastballs one after the other after the other. Some, you, can't, you know, there's certain nights where you can't work on your knuckleball. You have to just, you know, come in in relief or come in and pitch the first inning or two and, uh, you know, get to the closer. And you kind of have to really have a conversation with your ego every night and say, you know, what part am I playing in this role? You know, and uh, I love and respect the show as a whole that I really don't want to go out sometimes and, uh, you know, throw caution to the wind and try something that might be divisive. Uh, you know, sometimes you just have to tell the jokes that are going to get to the to the headliner. But then when I'm headlining shows, uh, man, I've had times where, you know, it's 60 minutes of me on stage and I have to there's one woman that's just derailing the whole thing. And I have to find a way to gently kind of say like, all right, well, so obviously tonight's going to be about you. <laughs> so we try to make wow. it fun. And uh, I try to kill with kindness instead of, you know, some comics get very bitter and angry and scream and yell. And then everybody gets very awkward. I think what you mentioned about like saying to the crowd, hey, I screwed that up. Uh, acknowledging awkward and tense moments is the most unbelievable freeing feeling to the whole crap you could feel a sigh of relief i've tried jokes that you know people jump in mid setup and and i'm like well i was believe it or not ma'am i know what i'm doing <laughs> you know like you paid to see this <laughs> it's such an awkward moment you know and and i feel you know like I, I really do think that subconsciously I go back to the music that we love where I'm like, this is not, it's going to be, it's not going to be perfect. And that's good. That's what makes it perfect. You know, it's just that freedom. I think, uh, I think the only time I get a sense of that is I do house concerts 
Which what does that really, what, really love doing. What does that a mean? A house concert is set up in somebody's living room. Really? And they, they invite their friends over and you invite some friends over, whatever. And it, it's it's literally just a concert in somebody's house. But the the intimacy of it is so different from what you get in a club or a festival. You know? Yeah. And I, what I, the reason I brought it up was that I think it's the only time that I'm in a situation where I can actually have verbal discourse with the audience. A club, you're not really going to get into a conversation with somebody. Clubs are too noisy and the intensity is too high. At a house concert, everybody in the room can hear everything that's being said and everybody's focusing on the music. You know, a lot of time when you're playing a club, the music is the third most interesting thing going on between getting drunk and getting laid. Of course. Right? Yeah, yeah. you're the soundtrack to the evening, right? Right. Yeah. So at a house concert, it's really much more about the music. So it, it gives you an opportunity to interact with people and you can have conversations with people because if somebody says something to you, everybody in the room heard it. Right. So you can deal with it and respond to it and make it part of the show. Um, whereas, you know, again, in the festivals and clubs and stuff, you, you, you don't have that sense that everybody is in on the conversation. So what I'm saying is it's the only time I think where I get to deal directly with an audience member in the same way that you have to do regularly in your yeah. work. <laughs> I know that's true. And uh, that, that sounds so neat though. Is that more of like, do you find that to be a coastal uh, thing? Do you, do you have many house, uh, house shows on the East coast or is that more of a, uh, I've done them all over the country. I've done them in, in uh, Boca Raton. I've done them in outside of Philadelphia. I've got places in Chicago and Wisconsin that I can do them. I actually don't play very much in California at all. I'll, I I don't work in the Bay Area very often. It's just one of those things. you know. I'm, I don't have a lot going on in my hometown, strangely enough. Yeah, isn't that they weird? like me a lot better in Pittsburgh than they do here. <laughs> so I go to Pittsburgh. Yeah. But I have house concerts all over the country and I, I I enjoy doing them. Uh, I enjoy all of the kinds of gigs that I get to do. I love playing in clubs. I love sitting in with electric bands and stuff. And I like playing festivals because uh, and each the requirements and the freedoms of each mode are different. In a right. club, you got to work a lot harder because again, you're the third most interesting thing happening in the room. And there's a lot of more ambient noise. So you got to kind of play harder in a club. Although I have had the experience of getting an entire brew pub to shut up so I could sing <laughs> Addicts of My Life. I'm talking about a specific wow. at the 38 State Brewery in Littleton, Colorado earlier this year. Like a hundred some people in the building. You're in a room with the, the beer vats and all that stuff. It's just sure. an incredibly loud electric room with sound bouncing off the walls and stuff. Yeah. Not an optimal performing situation for a solo guy, but I just, I am fearless, man. I just got up there and I did my show and I had a great time doing it. It was a wonderful experience. Everybody was so cool there. Yeah. And I managed to get everybody quiet to do a really, really quiet ballad addicts in my life. Wow. And I, you could hear a pin drop in that room. It was just mind blowing to me that it was, it was that focused, you know? So I'm, I feel like I am an effective performer in any of these settings and there's great value in each of them and great satisfaction to be had in each of them. But house concerts I think are my favorite because they are the most intimate and the most 
there's the most bandwidth between performer and audience. Yeah, that because sounds. Every, yeah, it's that's... like everybody's in a conversation together, and there may be forty or fifty people in the room, but they're all quiet and focused. You know, like people aren't in the back of the room schmoozing and and hitting on girls and stuff. <laughs> they're if they're there for the house concert, they're there for the house concert. So everybody's in the same conversation together. It's a beautiful, intimate setting. That that really sounds like such an incredible opportunity. Did you? Do you offer that up? Like, is that something where is it like friends that will say, hey, come play? You know, we're putting together a party. Or is this something that like anyone can reach out to you uh, via, like by your website or something and say, hey, you know, come I, do this? I don't necessarily solicit house concerts. I have on occasion when I was booking myself, I would sometimes go out on my mailing list and on Facebook, whatever, and post and say, yeah, I'm going to be in Connecticut. And I got a couple of days off. Anybody interested in a house concert, that kind of thing. And I, I made, I got a lot of them that way. Earlier this year, I played one in Massachusetts for a guy that just emailed me out of nowhere and said, "I'd love to have you." And I, I it was thrilling. It was a, one of my favorite shows of the year so far. Had a house full of people, made a ton of money, sold a bunch of books and records, and had most importantly a wonderful time playing for a room full of people that were really, really great to play for. So I will. Now that I have a booking agent, I, I don't have as many uh, days to fill in, you know, where I need to solicit a, a scene or something. But I still do them, and I'm certainly open to them. So if anybody listening to this podcast would like to uh, have me come and play a house concert, actually, there's a um, uh, a thing you can read on my blog, cloudsurfing.gdhour.com. Up in the right-hand corner, you'll find a link to a file called A House Concert Manifesto. <laughs> in which I explain what a house concert is and why I like doing them and how you can have one. And the main thing, there, there's a bunch of stuff. You'll appreciate this, Mike. Over time, I've developed a bunch of rules for them after yeah. having some unfortunate experiences. I got called, I got. I booked a, what I thought was supposed to be a house concert in Arizona. And when I got there, it turned out they were having a big party. And they just wanted me to be entertainment in the corner. And they, in fact, they made me set up on the other side of the swimming pool. And while I was setting up, a guy came in with a huge alcohol serving system. So it turned out that for my, what I thought was a house concert, there was an open bar over there. <laughs> I'm playing from the other side of the backyard. And they put a fucking wedding in the break between my two sets. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> so, I, so in my house concert manifesto, there are a number of little rules that go, if alcohol is being served, it's not a house concert. It's a party. It's a party. Oh, if man. A wedding between sets, it's not a house concert. It's a party. Well, I do a house concert. I pass the hat. It's suggested donation, this amount of money, right? Yep. And I agree to take whatever comes through the door as my pay. Oh, wow. Because the experience of doing a house concert is so wonderful and so satisfying that it has value separate from whether I make any money from it or not. I enjoy doing them. I love doing them. The, the satisfaction, the artistic payoff of mm. doing these shows is so good, right, that it's more important than how much money I might make. I make more money at other kinds of gigs, maybe. But what, I love doing these. But if you're inviting me to come play your house, but there's other things going on, if I'm just background entertainment, that's different. And I, I won't just pass the hat for that. That I want you to pay me a fixed rate because I'm just playing, you know, I'm, I'm basically wallpaper at your party. Right. That's yeah. very different from a house concert. 
So if you want me to come entertain your party, that's fine, but I'll charge you more for it because it's not as much fun as a house concert. Yeah, that's that, I don't blame you, and that's that's smart to throw together a couple of prerequisite rules. Um, when I was uh, in college, I played guitar and sang in a band called Downtown Brown, and uh, that was just the, uh, the the name that we called the quality of weed that we were getting from uh, Hartford, <laughs> Connecticut. <laughs> Real gross stuff. But we were doing a uh, a, a house party pig roast for uh, some bikers and we got set up in the woods next to uh, a bunch of trees um, the pig was roasting about you know not very far from our, our setup and uh, the smell was just kind of killing all of us and we were playing we were playing viola lee blues and this big biker comes up and gets in my face and goes play the fucking grateful dead and i go we are playing the grateful dead and he goes we'll play it better and just walked away <laughs> <laughs> and i said all right time to pack up i think this gig is done but uh yeah i'll tell you man it's there's something safe i think about playing in a in a in a bar or in a venue where it's like jesus if shit gets weird you know there were times setting up places where we're like oh man like we might not be you know, we may not leave with the shirts on our back. You know, we had some really <laughs> funky gigs to play, but this guy will play it better. <laughs> so, sorry, sir. If you want to sing, you're more than welcome. That now, this week, October, uh, starting October 3rd, I believe you're going to be down in South Carolina doing a solo run. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, boy, I'm glad that you're able to still that they got walloped with the with the storm. I know it headed f- more north, but um, is that's uh. Do you find yourself heading to um, the, the the southeast regularly? Is that an area that you love to play? I I used to play the southeast much more often. I was a regular at a festival in Live Oak, Florida, that happened twice a year, and uh, so I went down um, twice a year and toured in the south. But then I stopped going to that festival for several years, and was pursuing my opportunities elsewhere but i was invited back to that festival this year thank god nice. so i get to go back to the spirit of the suwanee music park for the uh, suwanee roots revival and that has led me to uh being uh back there uh, on a whole tour and again since i have booking agents now i'm able to uh do uh <laughs> yeah. do a lot of stuff a nice that, that I couldn't do when I was booking it all myself. Yeah, when you um when you're on the road and uh, you know I've, I'm a I'm an avid I'm a weekly listener to uh, Tales on Sirius XM uh, channel 23, the Grateful Dead channel. Um, I, I hear it sometimes you're on the road and you have to uh, you know call in, patch in, and uh, and take calls and stuff. Um, do you, have you had to do that a couple times while driving on the road? Uh, have you ever been actual in in movement while hosting the show i'm going to take the fifth on that uh, (laughs) we ask our listeners not to call while they're in moving cars (laughs) generally i i won't do that there was one occasion that i when i did it while driving and i don't want to confess to that because uh uh, i understand well it could have been hands-free the the, the nice thing well yeah it was hands-free of course but still yeah um the, the great thing about it is I have this device called the Comrex. It's a portable internet and telephone based broadcast unit. And I can anywhere I can get a decent internet connection or even a decent phone line, mm-hmm. I can participate in the show. Um, 
from wherever I am. I've done it from backstage. I've done it from the kitchen at a gig once. I've done it from sitting in my car backstage at a festival because that was the quietest place available. Wow. I've done it from house concert sites. I've done it from hotel rooms. It's just great to be able to do the show from wherever I am because I travel so much. I would hate to miss that many shows if I was away from home. Right. So the technology makes it possible. All of the things that I do uh, work together very nicely. I get to listen to music for my radio shows while I'm driving to my own gigs, right? Yep. I can produce my, my radio show, my syndicated radio show on my laptop anywhere I am. I can host my other radio show uh, using the Comrex wherever I am. So all of my music-oriented jobs interlock very very nicely in a way that allows me to make a living um doing things that individually don't add up to a living but collectively <laughs> manage to get my mortgage isn't it incredible i mean it's just so amazing to think back from like you know when it was you know the grateful dead hour on on the terrestrial uh you know radio i mean i listened on uh 105.9 whcn in hartford that's when i used to listen that that was the the station that played uh, the Grateful Dead Hour, and you know now. Yeah, that was one of my very first affiliates. Really, that was. I'm yeah, glad because I, I listened every week. Uh, it was every Sunday from ten to twelve. We yeah, used to, well, that yeah, because Bob Smith was doing a local show too. Right. right. Yeah, he played the Dead Zone, uh, I believe. But you know that some of the some of the episodes that you played, and it was such a fun way to learn more about something that I was so damn interested in, you know, I mean, this was pre-internet for me and, 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 and not for all of us really. And, and to be, you know, I started to pay attention to the shows that you would play and the years and the eras that it was from. And I remember thinking, damn, the great, this is like listening to five different bands at once, you know, cause one <laughs> week we would be listening to an acoustic Harper college, uh, Binghamton, 1970 and then the next week we'd be uh listening to egypt or whatever you know and, and it's like damn this is what what amazing versatility and uh it, it, i felt just so enamored by the whole the whole world i had a chance to talk a couple weeks ago with sam cutler on the show and uh, uh his his um you know joining the scene when he did and uh all of that and it's it really is kind of wild to look at the different chapters and i know you've you've covered it uh you know I mean, very detailed in, in a lot of your books with one of the new, the newer one being, this is all a dream we dreamed. Um, are there any plans for any books coming up? Uh, are you working on anything right now in the literary sense? I'm writing something that may or may not be a book. It depends. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I had a very interesting summer. I, I had a really, really busy month of July. Okay. That included touring uh, in the Northeast, a really wonderful variety of gigs from big festivals on a big stage, uh, a house concert or two, and some club gigs and some collaborations with other musicians. It was a wonderful tour, and I got sick as a fucking dog halfway through it. Oh, no way, really? That so far from I, home, it, too. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I'm a pretty healthy guy in general, so when it hit me, it just it just bummed me out, especially because it happened a day or two before I, I was a chick said I flew out to uh, Cincinnati. Okay. Started the tour at uh, Terrapin Hill Farm in Kentucky, 
and then went around on this tour that took me all the way up to Massachusetts. But I, I had uh, an opportunity to go out to Boulder, Colorado and play Pasta Jay's 30th anniversary bur uh, street party nice. in Boulder the day before the Dead & Company shows. And it timed out perfectly for me logistically. I played a gig in Rochester, drove the New York State Thruway to Albany, stayed in a hotel, got up early, got on an airplane to fly to Colorado to play this gig and then fly back two days later to resume my East Coast tour. No kidding. Which was, I, 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 it was all fine, although it definitely relies on airlines being on time, which is not always. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. I but yeah. I, 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 this all worked out logistically except for the fact that I got so damn sick and I had these coughing fits. I literally, every in-between lines, I'm off mic coughing, oh, trying to clear my throat, right? And then and it was so bad that when I got to Colorado, I went to, to see a doctor to find out if I had like pneumonia or bronchitis or something that needed medication. And, and she said, no, it's just a nasty cold, but it was a deep cold. And I literally was just coughing constantly so much that my chest hurt oh. and i had to do some gigs while i was doing that oh, man. also during that time dear friends of mine in cincinnati uh their oldest son got in a motorcycle accident and was in the hospital for 11 days during this trip and then died at the end of it. oh geez, and i'm sorry to hear that very very deep trauma to a community of people that i really really love yeah I'm so sorry. While I'm having this amazingly eventful tour with illness, I'm also dealing with this vigil that my friends were going through and then with the grieving. And uh, other things were going on too. My at the same time all this is happening, my wife is managing some heavy improvement projects on our house. We're having re-shingled and painting and stuff like that done. It was just a really, really intense time, and I was keeping kind of a diary of it. And when it was over, I decided I was going to write it up and see if it might be a, a publishable document oh, wow. of some kind. Thinking of it as five weeks in a very unusual life, right? Yeah. So I, I'm not sure yet if it's going to be uh, uh, anything that I decide to publish. I'm just writing it right now for the experience of writing it and collecting all of these Things. It was just so much going on at once, and it, it, it was um, at, at both an incredibly satisfying and an incredibly challenging time. Yeah. And along the way, I'm I'm writing stuff about how I make music and, and and things like that. So it may or may not turn into a book. And if it would be, if it does become a book, it would be a, a personal book rather than a history book about the Great. Book. Right. Well, uh, you, which means I may, may not be able to find a publisher for it. <laughs> well, you know, they're self-publishing these days. And, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, I would love next time we, we get together and chat. I would uh, I would really love to talk with you about your uh, your writing process, because I feel like that could be an entire other episode of, uh, you know, I'd love to pick your brain. And I think we could kind of go back and forth on that quite a bit. And, David, you know, the whole time we're talking, I'm thinking maybe you and I uh, need to link up and do a tour together uh, where uh I can open up for you, tell some jokes, and then uh, I could work as security if anybody starts talking during Addicts of My Life, <laughs> <laughs> which I would be happy to do. Um, David, it's... Talk about that off the air. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, and, and I know you have a busy schedule. Thank you so much for, for taking some time. Uh, before we part ways, um, can you let our listeners know where they can find uh, all things David Gans? 
I am on Facebook uh, with several pages. The Grateful Dead Hour has a page. Each of my books and recent CDs has a page. There's a David Gans musician page. Um, there's a uh, Tales from the Golden Road page, etc. I also have a website at dgans.com, D-G-A-N-S.com. Extremely primitive because my coding skills are way back at HTML1, and I have no idea what I'm doing on that stuff. <laughs> but I also have this blog, cloudsurfing.gdhour.com, where I post the playlists for the radio shows and upcoming gigs and stuff like that. So I'm pretty easy to find online. I'm also on Twitter, David Gans, and uh, Instagram, dgans53. David, uh, it's always a pleasure, and uh, thank you very much uh, for taking time and. Uh, I'll be sure to send uh, out every all the avenues that uh, our listeners can find you, and uh, hopefully we could chat again sometime real soon. I'm happy to do it with you, sir. This is great fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, travel safe this week.